Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. If you're anything like me, sharpening your reed knife is one task that you definitely do not look forward to. But good news. Since day one, Gender Reed Knives have been the highest quality and sharpest reed knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives. It is the single most important tool in our reed making kit, after all. Now Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet our sharpening needs. They're offering a wide variety of full-size and travel sharpening stones, straps, and compounds that can be used in the studio, in the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening life better. You've got a good reed knife. Now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all capitals, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. And don't forget, they are much more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Galit, it's 2019, the new year. I am both excited and full of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking before we started to record that, you know, we both are have some kind of like uh, mixed feelings about going into 2019. Half of me is so hopeful and bright-eyed, and the other half of me is just deeply suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2018 for me was a really good year. It brought a lot of things, uh, a lot of new opportunities and things, and now that's resulted in kind of a bunch of life particles, big girl stuff that I'm waiting to see how they'll all land and figure themselves out, and that can be kind of a, you know, interesting time but I love the vibe of a new year. I love the fresh start. I love the reflection, you know, just kind of the excitement that goes into the buzz of a new year. It's very much my vibe. Oh yeah. A thousand percent. So we were thinking that it would be cool to start the new year sort of with a podcast version of a vision board. Yeah. What do we want 2019 to be like? How do we want it to look, even if we're not like quite there yet. Okay. So if I had to come up with one word for how I want 2019 to be, it would be trust because it's a something that does not come naturally to me. (laughs) 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 I think it would be really, really useful to give up the control and just send it to the universe or whatever you call that entity and just trust that it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and you can handle it and deal with it as things come. Oh, definitely. My word is the very related serenity. Oh, that's great. Well, which I shared with my husband and he, I'm not a Seinfeld watcher, but apparently there's like a... I thought that was kind of funny, but, but yes, I love the idea of the quiet confidence of serenity and very related to trust. So we're definitely on the same page going into 2019 there. What about an emoji? What's your emoji going into 2019? Uh, The emoji I want to go into 2019 representing is, you know, that hand, like the flexed hand with the nail polish going on it. It appears in literally 99% of all of the texts that I get from you. It's the nail polish. <laughs> I just think it's such a 
fabulous emoji like just oh check out my nails i'm not stressed i'm painting my nails yeah <laughs> i'm fabulous <laughs> i love it <laughs> what about you mine is going to be prayer hands to go with the trust ah. i'm just i'm doubling down i am doubling down i need to do it also love salsa girl Oh, salsa girl. You also, one way you use a lot that confuses me is the cowboy hat emoji. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think it just means like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> what? Do you have a quote to go into 2019? I don't particularly have one, but I'd love to hear what you've got. This has been coming up in the memories part of my Facebook because apparently I posted around the turn of the new year every year. <laughs> so it's from James Baldwin, the very famous author. And he says, know from whence you came. If you know from whence you came, there are absolutely no limitations to where you can go. I love it. And I think it works on a multitude of levels, you know, um, especially as musicians. If we all know our path of development and the progress that we've made and the trajectory that we've taken, there's a lot to be proud of and there's a lot to be grateful for and there's a lot to acknowledge in terms of accomplishment. So I think it's multifaceted in terms of, I just love that, know from whence you came. I love that. It's grounded and it's about forgiveness and gratitude and that's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to steal it. So before we started recording, we were looking at images that could signal 2019. And both of us independently chose Beyonce images. Do you want to say yours first? Well, to, to be fair, I think that pretty much any Beyonce image represents how I want to go into 2019. Like, it could be the one of her falling on stage and I would still be oh like, God. I want to fall like Beyonce. <laughs> she fell and she turned it into a power bounce. WWBD. I use her in my teaching all the time. Yes, I love it. But my specific image is from, we don't use profanity on the podcast, so the ape poo poo video. <laughs> <laughs> I know the one. And we'll post this. When we post the episode, we'll also post our inspiration images. Uh, but it's Beyonce and her husband, Mr. Beyonce, uh, standing in front of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. And it's how the video begins and ends. And I love that image. I think it is so, the whole video I highly recommend, especially to classical musicians, because there's this whole symbolism with them occupying the Louvre and doing this different kind of art that has not been classified as classical in this place where quote unquote fine art happens and the juxtaposition of that and the racial juxtaposition of that and all that type of stuff. So all of that symbolism of being a intentional representation in your art, and that's definitely how I want to go into 2019. Uh, I love that she is booed up and standing there, you know, and in her mm -hmm. family unit in confidence, and that's her foundation, and that's what she's holding on to as she goes into her art, and that's something I definitely want to emulate. She's not looking backward at the art of the past. She's looking forward to what she's going to create. And this is actually perfect way into Leah Uribe's interview because she talks a lot about going back to your roots and finding what's special and unique about you and finding your authentic voice and allowing that to speak for you, you know, using the bassoon or the oboe as your voice. And uh, I think we could all do a little bit more of that. Yeah. No, I love it. What would be your Beyonce image of 2019? It was the split image. And on the left, there's a picture of little child Beyonce performing in a pageant. Um, and then there's a picture on the right of her on stage as a full grown adult in her gorgeous, bedazzled leotard, like looking like a powerful, gorgeous human being, you know, I mean, in both of them, but like, you can see, you know, the, the growth of her own power within herself and the confidence. 
but I loved looking at the, at the, you know, at where she came from and, and who she is now. And it's just, it's hopeful and inspiring to me. So that was my image. It's like, okay, no matter where you come from or how you feel about who you are on the inside, we have the potential to become this incredible force. I think inadvertently we have morphed from being a double read podcast to being a in praise of Beyonce podcast. And I'm here for it. I'm not complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing we ask our guests all the time, do you have anything, any kind of upcoming performances or events or big things musically going into 2019 that you're super psyched about? Yeah, I do. I'm going to be performing the Lucas Foss Concerto with the USM Symphonic Winds this semester, which I'm super excited about. You didn't tell me that. That's amazing. Oh, I didn't? No, I'm going (laughs) to do that in March. (laughs) I love Lucas Foss. He worked at BU when I went there, and every once in a while he'd come into the office, and we'd all be, like, super quiet and, like, look at each other and be like, "Uh, Lucas Foss is here (laughs) right now. I can't believe I didn't tell you that. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited. So I'm learning that. I also just ordered a bunch of new music by women composers. So I'm going to be learning a bunch of hopefully hidden gems that I didn't know about before. I'm expanding my repertoire. And then probably the most exciting thing is that this summer, Alex Klein and I are hosting a week-long oboe camp on the Southern Miss campus. So that's going to be June 30th to July 6th, and um, it's going to be amazing. So if you're an oboist and you're listening to this and you're thinking, hmm, that sounds like a fun week, then you should definitely come. It's called the Gulf Coast Summer Oboe Academy. Yeah, we can link to more information about that in the show notes. What do you have going on? I'm gearing up to go to the Meg Quigley Vivaldi Competition and Symposium here in about a week and a half, which I'm super excited about. There are going to be so many just phenomenal bassoonists and I get to collaborate with them and watch them do their thing and hear young women who are just starting out in the field compete and you know, kick butt and play their high knees off. And I'm super excited about that. I have not been to Meg Quigley before. So this will be my first time. And I'm there as a part of the team. And I'm just super psyched about that. I will be back and tell you guys all about it. I can't wait to share. And then my big thing is I'm recording an album in early summer, and it's going to be pieces by Native American composers, including some commissions. Um, just last week, I was on a Skype conference with one of the people uh, writing a piece for me, a Navajo composer named Raven Chacon, and we were brainstorming different things, and he was asking me to play different um, types of sounds and fingerings and that type of stuff. And I was just like, oh, I'm so excited to get this project underway. And so more about that to come as well. Well, that's amazing. 2019 is going to be good. I can feel it. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. We are so delighted to welcome to the podcast Leah Uribe, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at the University of Arkansas. Welcome. Thank you so much, guys, for inviting me. It's, it's, it's a great honor and a great pleasure to be here with you. I listen to your podcast all the time, and it's like, you know, 
it's so awesome to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. I love to start by asking how you first came to the bassoon. Oh, that's a good story, I think, uh, because I'm from Colombia, South America, and, you know, it's kind of a different world. We don't have the band systems that we have here in the United States. So, you know, I grew up without any actual access to this, you know, plethora of instruments and variety of, uh, you know, opportunities, uh, let alone classical music. I grew up listening to salsa music. That's my thing. Uh, my mother used to say that I learned how to dance before I learned how to walk. And I knew all the <laughs> lyrics to all the salsa. I still do. I love that music. So it came the time to pick an instrument just for fun because my aunt had a piano in her house. So I, you know, I wanted to take piano lessons and I took a few. Uh, it was way too expensive for my family. So that was the end of my pianist career. Then I you know, delved into the guitar. So I was able to sing some songs with my friends. Uh, but then I got into art and I wanted to join something serious uh, where I could, you know, learn more about how to draw and how to paint. I was 11 at the time. I started painting. By age 13, I got really tired of the old ladies group that got together on Saturday morning to paint, you know, to copy things. So I was like, I need something different. So <clears throat> I went to the newspaper and found this ad for the School of Fine Arts in my city. And uh, I told my mom that I wanted to be there. So we went and checked it out. And uh, it ended up being a program, a bachelor's degree, basically, in art. It wasn't open for people my age. But at the same time, they told us that the conservatory had openings for music because they did have a program for kids. So uh, I decided to join. Um, and I wanted to be a pianist. So when I was registering to the conservatory after actually taking a lot of tests, and we only choose 16 kids for the year, so, and finally they asked me, what well, do you want to play? Like, oh, I want to be a pianist. And they said, well, you're 13, you're way too old to play the piano. So I had to choose an instrument. <clears throat> so my, I had started already some classes and my theory teacher uh, wanted to guide me knowing that I didn't know anything about those instruments. So he said, well, we have a great viola professor, an awesome cello professor, a really, really good bassoon professor and a French horn. So he took me actually to their offices to interview them and to actually see the instruments for the very first time. And the bassoon professor said, well, if you choose the bassoon, you'll be the first girl in this conservatory playing the bassoon. And that's the beginning of this story. Wow. That's, I didn't know anything about that instrument. I just <laughs> wanted to be that girl, <laughs> that first wow. girl playing that instrument. Which is interesting, you know, I think about it often, like life has taken me many, many places, you know, my life, the way I have uh, construed everything that I do and have and my uh, relationships, everything is around bassoon. And I was 13 when I made that decision without knowing what I was signing for. Could That's you, it. <laughs> <laughs> Could you walk us through the training that happened next, uh, how you experienced school in the conservatory and then going on to pursue your degrees? What was that experience like? Well, first, that conservatory program <clears throat> was um, really strict. So pretty much from uh, that time until I graduated from high school at age 17, uh, I was going to this conservatory every day after school to uh, take bassoon lessons, to sing in the choir. I had music theory. I had music history classes. Uh, it was pretty strenuous. And, um, you know, like every day until 7 or 8 p.m., uh, they're doing music things. Uh, so by the time I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to be a musician. Um, I went through like three or four different bassoon professors uh, through these you know, few years because uh, my city, Cali, has um, at the time had a symphony orchestra, but uh, it wasn't well paid and, you know, the, the jobs were not very stable. So people were coming and going. And um, so I decided that if I wanted to be serious about this and I, I knew I wanted to be a musician, I had to move to Bogota, uh, to the main conservatory, Universidad Nacional de Colombia, uh, with um, the professor Siegfried Micklin, who had been, uh, you know, the person that started the bassoon school in Colombia that guided all of us until he retired um, um, in the early 2000s. And um, so, yeah, I, um, I moved to Bogota and joined the conservatory there. And that's where I got my bachelor's degree. 
You got your master's degree in the United States. I did. And your doctorate in the United States. Can you yeah. tell us about your decision to study abroad and what your experience was like as a person from Colombia coming to an entirely different culture? Ooh, <laughs> that's a lot right there. So I <laughs> work on my degree in Bogota. That was, uh, you know, a new experience for me um, to leave my parents. I was an only child and uh, my parents could not afford to take care of my, you know, studying in a different city. So right away I started working. So I got many jobs and I was, uh, you know, doing the usual things, uh, you know, bartender, waitress, um, taking care of kids. Uh, but also playing with some symphony orchestras when they needed an extra musician and auditioning for other orchestras. And then I started just finding my way um, in Bogota as, you know, to move into working only in music. So uh, it was really interesting to collect all of those experiences. Um, so by the time I graduated from my bachelor's, I had already you know, played with different orchestras. I had directed an after-school program in music. I was teaching bassoon in a system that is very similar to the system in Venezuela. Uh, There's uh, music for everybody. So I was teaching bassoon. Um, I had been, uh, what else? I had some radio experience. I loved the radio, still do. So um, interesting things that gave me a lot of perspective, but also made me realize that if I stayed in Colombia at the time, I was going to be doing the same thing for the next, I don't know, 45 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And that was a really scary thought. <laughs> so uh, I started looking for options. Um, I had a really good mentor, um, piano professor in the conservatory that was the director of a contemporary music festival. So she was a, a very important, uh, you know, like guiding light into this search. And she was always telling me, you know, meet this person, go to that place, check out this other person. Or um, <clears throat> really, really interesting um, guidance. So she directed me into uh, a residence program in Banff, Banff Center for the Arts in Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. So that was actually my first experience out of the country. So I went there without knowing anything. I just got a really good scholarship and I applied and they accepted me. I'm like, okay, I'm going. <laughs> that, you know, I, it was really life-changing for many reasons. Just to be around, you know, 20 other out of 19 other uh, musicians from all over the world. Uh, some of them, many of them, most of them, super, super talented, way above my level. I mean, they came there to record CDs, to, you know, practice for their world tour. And I was just there observing and mm-hmm. getting as much as I could from every connection and also learning how to speak English too. I was, mm-hmm. I was really shocking because, you know, at, in high school and even before we had English uh, classes, but it doesn't mean anything when life really comes to you when people start talking to you in a different language it's a different story Mm -hmm. (laughs) so being there immersed in that world was um really uh, humbling and really taught me a lot so by the time of the uh towards the end of the residency um i knew that i had to find something so i started applying to schools Uh, again without knowing much where to go what to do i you know i had some suggestions um, one very important violinist from Colombia, Luis Biaba, uh, was the assistant director, conductor for um, Philadelphia Symphony. So he said, we need to go study with Bernard Garfield. And I'm like, okay, I wrote a letter for Bernard Garfield and I you know, sent him my tape. tape. Um, <laughs> I um, had had a master class with uh, Barry Steves in Bogota. And then I applied when he was teaching in Michigan. And then I read in this IDRS list that I had just recently signed that the University of Arkansas had some uh, TAs available. I didn't know what a TA was, but that sounded really appealing. So I also connected with uh, the professor, Richard Ramey. And, and that's how I had these options open. It ended up that I didn't make it. I was on a waiting list for uh, Mr. Garfield. Um, Barry, stays. Barry was really interested in having me, but I could not afford going to Michigan and they didn't have any, uh, enough money for me to go. There was no way for me to afford uh, studying in the States mm-hmm. at all. And then the University of Arkansas had everything. Everything was just so, it, it just it was flowing so nicely. Um, I got the right amount of money and right, the letters were just so supportive. Everything just kind of fell into place and I decided to come to the University of Arkansas to work on my master's. It's potentially a big question, but 
you're known for your work with Colombian composers, or at least that's that's what I associate a lot with you and I find particularly inspiring. You actually inspired me to start to really engage with Native American composers because moving to Missouri, um, I'm so separated from any of the indigenous American populations and I felt really culturally isolated and I admired so much how you stay very connected to your Colombian identity through your music making. Um, So I'd love to hear about why that's important to you and about um, your pursuing collaborations with representing Colombian music in bassoon, but also I'd love to hear about some of those specific experiences, the composers you work with, the pieces that you've commissioned, that type of thing. Uh, thank you for all of that, by the way. It's good to know that, uh, you know, somebody knows about what I'm doing and I'm inspiring <laughs> somebody else. So that's, that's, that's beautiful. And thank you for that. Um, I think it's just a need to find yourself, you know, to me, music has been a path uh, in many ways, you know, to meet people, to connect with people, to know places, but also to find myself. And uh, at some point, obviously, you know how classical music is. You, know, you have to go all the way to the past and study all the traditions and become really good at it. And I did it, but I still wasn't completely happy. And, and then being in the States and being, um, this actually didn't start from the very beginning. This is kind of a new thing. I started with my dissertation when I was working at KU in my doctorate and I was looking for a subject for uh, what to write about, what to, what to play. And that was my first actual, you know, serious connection with research in Latin American music and commissions, um, music for bassoon. And after that just has become a need. And I don't, I don't mean to become, to, you know, be political here, but uh, is, is that this idea of being a minority and finding a voice um, especially in the last few years in which I, you know, woke up one morning thinking I am a minority in every sense of the word, you know. I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I am an educator, I'm a woman, I am an immigrant. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's a big eye-opening, like you've got to do something about it and use your voice. Mm-hmm. And to me, my voice, I'm very vocal about my ideas, I'm pretty opinionated about things pertaining um, specifically to those subjects. But uh, the bassoon and my teaching, those are my strongest voices. So um, that's <clears throat> all my interests and my resources. And I, you know, I just have enjoyed it much. And joining the faculty at the University of Arkansas has helped me a lot. It's been a great platform just to support that research. So connecting with other faculty members in the Latin American studies um, or um, just friends interested in the same subject and applying for grants to be able to commission some pieces, um, just, you know, looking for the right tools to put everything together and be able to pursue that passion. Um, my first commission was actually, a, it wasn't a commission, it was a piece that I didn't know was written for me by a Colombian composer that um, we're very good friends and then we didn't see each other for many years. And then one day he said, well, you know, back in the day when we were in the same conservatory, I wrote this piece thinking about you <laughs> and another friend. So he told me the story like, well, great, why don't we finish this piece? And then I will include it in my <clears throat> dissertation. That was Johan Hasler that um, wrote a diptych, two movements for bassoon, uh, solo bassoon. And then I reached out to a composer from uh, <clears throat> Colombia as well that had studied in Russia oboe player, but he got his degree, but what he does today is um, he composes. So I reached out to him and uh, asked him if he wanted to write something for me, and he wrote this awesome piece called um, Mobile for Bassoon and Piano, and that was also included in my dissertation and later uh, in my latest CD. And, and after that, just <clears throat> I just started reconnecting and reconnecting with the composers and reconnecting with friends from the time and really reconnecting with myself in that way. Uh, that search for composers and new pieces has expanded also to other Latin American composers. Um, sometimes they reach out to me, sometimes I go and find them, sometimes I can pay them, sometimes I cannot. Sometimes we you know, agree I'm going to record them or you know, play them every time I have the opportunity to do it. Uh, you know, it's just whatever we can work out. Uh, I, I, feel also that the idea of Latin American music is very biased. Um, I was just talking about this morning to an awesome group of people. It's a group of retired people that get together 
twice a week to learn about Sang. It's an interesting program. So, you know, a group of music professors were there talking about Leonard Bernstein, and I was talking about um, Latin identity, misrepresentation of Latin identity in um, Bernstein's West Side story. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, talking about how Latin American music is nothing, really. I mean, if you ask me, uh, are you a Latin person? Or if you ask me to present myself, to introduce myself, I would never say, I'm Leo Uribe, I'm a Latin American musician, Latin American bassoon. No, I'm a Colombian person, I'm a bassoonist, I'm, I don't know, something like that. Latin America is way too wide. It's way too non-precise. You know, it's a collection of so many countries with... with uh, so many identities and particularities and histories and processes that, um, you know, it's, it's just really, it's, 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 uh, it's so rich to, to label it under one word. So, yeah, my thing is Latin American music, but it's beyond that. It's just this idea of bringing composers, minorities especially, people that have not found a voice or better a conduit, you know, to, to reach out to us here in the States. And um, so they live there with their music, not knowing what to do with it. So if I can facilitate bridging that and allowing them to know other people, to connect. I've always been a connector too. I like connecting people. So uh, that's part of that. It's, it's an interesting and actually really fun thing to do, connecting. That leads me really nicely into my next question, which is about your passion for inclusiveness and diversity in the arts. What are some of the problems that you see in classical music and maybe ways that we can think about it that will help bridge that gap and create more connection? So I just came back from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. I was attending a conference called Music Cities, and that was such a life-changing content that came to me in in a very unique way. Uh, because my passion also in terms of advocacy at the moment for the last few, very few years, has to do also with connecting with the community and not necessarily through the bassoon. And I know that I have a lot of uh, ways to reach out, um, again, not necessarily playing, but just making sure that everybody has a voice. And representation has become a very important word for me because diversity and inclusiveness, they're there, right? I mean, um, we have a very diverse community here where I live, right? We have a, a great amount of uh, Mexican people, Marshallese people, uh, people from El Salvador, Honduras, a few Colombians, and um, a lot of African-American people. I mean, there's, it's a very diverse community, but it doesn't mean that, uh, for example, in our orchestras, we are uh, programming music that represents them. So we are expecting to reach out to them. And in the past, this model, like, you know, we try to reach out to them. We send them free tickets, but they don't want to come. Well, why would they want to come to the big, uh, you know, concert hall to listen to Tchaikovsky? I always use the same example, but seriously, why would they come to listen to Tchaikovsky if they don't have that connection with Tchaikovsky? If we maybe presented something that represents their culture or, you know, a composer they know or a piece based on themes from some tradition or better off uh, if we go to them, right? So part of my idea of uh, uh, reforming this environment and making music accessible is what are we going to do together to make sure we are representing each other and working together. Um, in this conference, I, I, you know, I was so illuminated by the idea of diversity and I had approached, because of my personal agenda, diversity from the perspective of race and class and power. But uh, it became also to me clear that it's about age. So when we music, and we're talking about music and reaching out through music, we have to reach out to little kids and give them the opportunity since a very early age to be around music, right? And in school and advocate for schools for their music programs. And then... It is our uh, responsibility to protect all their musicians, too, when they retire, to make sure that they have the opportunity to have a nice life, popular music, classical music, any type of music, you know, protect people with disabilities. Uh, you know, diversity in the extent of uh, its world. So that's um, something that I keep thinking about. So I belong to some boards. I've been the musician's representative uh, to the board of one of my orchestras. So I go there and I meet with the board and once in a while send a little message about <laughs> diversity, inclusiveness, representation. Let's do something. And 
um, you know, I think it's becoming trendy, actually. And the reality, fortunately, I guess, is that nowadays, if you're applying for a grant, if you're not presenting something that includes other um, groups, especially underrepresented groups, or if you don't do things that are interdisciplinary, then you have less chances of getting that grant. So that's a good thing for me. It's a good tool for me to, you know, keep keeping, you know, the idea of that for them to embrace. Um, I also work with a program that is run by Mid-America Arts Alliance. It's called Artists Inc. And through that program, I facilitate, I'm a facilitator for them, and I work with artists on a yearly basis. And what we do is help them um, find the entrepreneur aspect of their career. So musicians and visual artists and dancers and writers, um, how can they actually be artists without having to struggle and starve and be able to make a living out of whatever is important to them from the artistic perspective. Mm -hmm. So that to me is also a way to reach out and to advocate for the arts and to empower people because I think it's still that idea that, okay, you're going to be a photographer, you're going to die, you know, poor and and happy and you're going to have to work in the bank from nine to five and then take pictures during the weekend. No, if your passion is art, if your passion is music, we, these hours we need to empower them and to help them uh, and to help people that will support them to facilitate those processes. Have you found that these efforts, either in entrepreneurship or diversity and inclusion, manifest themselves in your pedagogy at all? Uh, yeah, they do. I have to be, right? You have to be honest uh, with myself and with my students about who I am. So besides, you know, the bassoon studio that I have, and of course, they see my process. They, they see what I'm doing. I talk to them and involve them in some of these projects. Of course, I make him, you know, play some Latin music here and there and experience that as well. Um, I also teach a music lecture class. It's a, um, you know, music appreciation type of class for non-music majors. And those classes are large and all of them come and they hate it. Most of them, they just have to take that class, you know, to fulfill that. <laughs> I am not familiar with that attitude at all. <laughs> all of right? my first students love being there. <laughs> in in large classes it's it's interesting but um, that's a really good place for me to do that advocacy because I know that I don't care if they remember you know who were the main composers in the romantic period although I make a point of teaching those things too but uh, those are our audiences and those are the ones that are going to go out and support their local orchestras and local musicians and hopefully, uh, you know, give money and go to concerts and um, be informed. So mm-hmm. I do a great deal of advocacy, in, especially in those classes, um, educating audiences for what I think is, is right. It's a you know, diverse programming, diverse, diversity. Yeah, diversity. Do you find that the idea of diversity inclusion can be controversial or can, can be something that is not fully accepted right away and have to fight for it? Uh, yes, there's a lot of resistance, yeah. Um, in many instances, in, at many levels, um, I, you know, I imagine people wonder also in my Boston world, why am I only playing Latin American music instead of, you know, playing um, more uh, traditional repertoire. And, um, but, uh, you know, at this point in my life, I, I'm old. <laughs> I, I should be able <laughs> to make those decisions. And right. if, if I don't do it, I feel like I have that inside information. And because of that, it is easier for me to do it. And, and I imagine, Jackie, you, you feel the same way with Native American uh, music as well. well you know, you, you have it in, within you. I don't have to go there. And sometimes that objectivity is very important as well in research. But uh, I know this language. You know, I I I have these. I am Latin American. I am Colombian. I I, I can relate to those experiences of those composers. So um, I mean, I go with it, and if they like it, they like it. If they don't, they, you know, not everybody likes Tch- Tchaikovsky either. So <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> no, there is. I, I find also that um, you know, in the last few years, this idea. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we we deal with more than we used to with resistance against coming from a different world. And um, I had this really terrible, heartbreaking, interesting conversation with a friend 
when I was writing my tenure um, materials, um, she was helping me with my grammar. <laughs> and in, at some place I wrote, well, as a minority, I understand the needs or whatever, whatever. And then she's like, well, you're not a minority. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not? Yes, I am. But you look like a minority. So we had this really, it was painful for me to take that conversation because as much as I have had many, I, I have had, I'm a very, very privileged minority, I have to say. And privilege, you know, can be measured in many ways. One of them is education, right? The other one, uh, I mean, many things, right? So, yeah, I'm an educated minority. And because of that, I have access to other people. But once I leave the educational environment and I go out to the store, I become a minority. And people will discriminate me in many ways because of my accent or because of my lack of understanding of whatever, or just because I look different, uh, you know? So, yes, I am a minority and I'm happy to be a minority. And even if I don't look it all the time, um, I, you know, it's, I find it's my job to do it. And with the recession and everything, I'm going to keep working for it. Mm -hmm. Shifting just a little bit, you have, as we've talked about, a lot of different efforts going on, a lot of um, things that you're working on concurrently. So how do you structure your days so that you make the most of your practice time? And how do you approach work-life balance? Do I? <laughs> if you do it all. Or <laughs> if it exists, yeah. <laughs> what is that? Um, I learned... Should I say that or not? I don't know if I have really learned, but there was a really busy time in my life when I was working in my doctorate. Um, I was, I had a job in Springfield, Missouri. I was teaching at a couple of universities, at Drury University and Missouri State University. I was playing with the Springfield Symphony Orchestra and I was working in my doctorate at the same time in Lawrence, Kansas, it was three and a half hours away from me. So um, I was commuting all the time back and forth. And, and also I'm, at the time I was the mother, I'm still the mother of these kids, but at the time they were uh, six and seven years old. So, you know, I learned then in order to be able to, without going crazy much, uh, finishing that um, endeavor that I had to, you know, think, do one thing at a time, right? So uh, I still do the same, you know, in the morning I am, you know, I'm teaching, when I'm teaching, I'm teaching. I schedule my time to practice. When it's time to practice, that's all I can do. I practice. And then when I go home, when I come back home at 3.30 until my kids go to bed, I'm, I'm a mom and I'm taking care of them. And even, they're a little bit more independent now. But, you know, I just, you know, kind of defining specific times for the things that I have to do. Lots of clarity in my mind and how the schedule is going to go. Um, I claim to be a runner, and along with that goes that I'm probably the slowest runner ever, but I do <laughs> run on a regular basis, and that keeps me grounded. So um, that I, <laughs> I don't like running with people because they are faster than me, and because if they want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to them. That's my time to be by myself. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's important to me to keep that um, balance. Um, in the morning, I, I'm a really, really early morning person, so I usually wake up at five. So I have an hour before my kids wake up to do my planning. If I have to write emails, you have, I plan my day, I do some reading, whatever it is, just to keep some sanity. But uh, many other times, it's just it's hard, you know? I mean, it's so much going on I, between my teaching schedule and my kids' schedule and my playing and performing. And I travel a lot to... And my quintet that, you know, we just we have, a lot of, have had a lot of fun lately with our newest CD. So, you know, it's just, it's busy, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. You guys know how that is. You're oh, busy. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What advice can you give us about read making? And what maybe also, what's some, of, some good advice that you've received about read making? Um, you know, I, I cannot tell, I cannot say that read making is my strength. I have always struggled with that. And I think uh, the best advice that I got was when, uh, while working on my doctorate, when I was really stressed about why some things were not working here and were working here and not there. And my teacher said, well, what you have to do is when you have your three hours you know, of practice a day, one hour has to be devoted to technique. One hour has to be devoted to your repertoire. One, one hour a day has to be devoted to read making. 
And that was a shifting, you know, uh, idea of how you get better at that. You just have to do it and do it and do it. And I like to think about things a lot, but of course in music and in with making that doesn't work. Right? The other thing that happened to me when I was still in Colombia and for many years anyway, was that uh, resources were so scarce, uh, uh, you know, it was really difficult to get materials, to get machines, to get all of those things. So um, when, while making reads, then uh, the idea was you have to save every piece of cane you have. So I spent a lot of time just, one, making every read sound, even if it wasn't a good read and sound good, and also making sure that every piece of material, you know, was going to be used without any waste. And I had to change my mind in that regard also that, you know, there's a point in which your uh, time is more valuable than the materials or the time you're going to spend on a piece of cane that is not going to work. So if there's an advice, is that, you know, you're consistent with making uh, on a regular basis and with my students on a daily basis and myself, um, and just to know when to stop when you're making a read and when to move on to the next one, uh, just to make sure your time's done. Did you find that those, um, the limited resources that you mentioned, did that add an intensity to your study as a student? Intensity in what regard? Um, did you take it more seriously because the resources were more finite or was that just kind of the reality and it felt normal? Because you said you had to readjust when you came uh, to the yeah. United States. No, I think that... Um, to be a, a musician in, uh, in Colombia, that's what I know. Oh, actually, no, that's not what I know. No, I know more than that because I just came back from Peru and I was stationed in Peru. May, I was in Argentina last, um, last year and I saw similar situation in which you have to try really hard. I mean, like the instruments, they, the first bassoon that I had and the second and the third, they were terrible, awful bassoons, you know, uh, and I was trying to make it as a performer and I was, you know, playing Weber bassoon concerto in a bassoon that my teacher could not make a sound in, you know. But the enthusiasm and the passion and just the need to do it really forced me to, to you know, direct. So, yeah, obviously it creates some other issues, right? Like if, if I had had a better instrument at the time and better reads, maybe my progress would have been different. I don't know. But that's all you have. And, and I saw it back when I went to teach Every time I go to teach to my country, is it that enthusiasm that is above everything and you're going to make it work and you have to work really hard, but you're going to make it work. So I think that, I don't know if it's work ethic or maybe just deep passion and commitment to my, you know, myself, I guess. So when your students at Arkansas complain, you say, cry me a river. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my teacher, Eric Stomberg, uh, he uses me as an example many times when somebody comes like, oh, you know, I didn't have time to, well, you know, I had a student that was commuting from, uh, you know, three hours away, three times a week, and she had two kids and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's funny to hear the story, but, you know, I, I, something that I learned from my situation too is that you never know what people are going through, you know? I mean, nobody really knew that I had two little kids at home as a single mom. Uh, holding several jobs to make sure, you know, everything was taken care of and uh, and pursuing this doctor that it wasn't just the need of a degree. It was a, an actual life need because I knew that that was my uh, next step into getting a full-time job so I could have a stable life. And I had told my kids, when I have a full-time job, we're going to get a dog. And they were so excited about that dog that we were going, <laughs> <laughs> I had to get, you know, through that doctorate and get that full-time job. Oh, that's so awesome. That happened. We get a dog and get another one. That's awesome. Good motivator. <laughs> <laughs> My kids are going to be so mad day. at me if they don't get that dog. <laughs> I tell you, after a year of doing that crazy thing of commuting and holding life or trying to, I was ready to quit, but I was just, you know, after one year of not being with my kids, like other moms had been, I I felt like I had to finish it. Otherwise, it was going to be the wrong message. It was a hard time. It, I remember so many tears. <laughs> well, and as you know, as a professor, the days can be really long. Um, but I bet it adds a different element of joy in what we do. I mean, I can assume we all have joy in what we do, but you really had to earn this. You know, the privilege to have that long day is something that came of your blood, right. sweat, and tears. So it adds this kind of 
perspective. I know. It, it's, it's interesting how life works. You know? I look back and yeah, it was hard, but it taught me a lot and it taught my kids a lot. And, and you know, every situation in life that has been difficult is always a great experience to, to be stronger, to get better. Do you have any favorite um, memories of a past performance that you would like to share with us? I have to confess, by the way, at this point, uh, that I didn't read the questions that you guys sent me, but I know some of the questions because I listened to you guys. <laughs> I didn't want to be prepared, like I wanted to make it natural, <laughs> to make it a conversation. But this, this question I was thinking about earlier because I know where it comes. You know uh-huh. it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's our favorite. <laughs> so... Uh, well, I mean, there are many memories that come to mind, but um, there was uh, one recently when I came back to Colombia, it was 2016, I was uh, part of a group of um, bassoonists that came to teach and perform in this international bassoon festival. Your teacher was there, uh, Ben, uh, and, you know, other people from the States, from Brazil, from Argentina, from Germany. It was just a great collection of uh, faculty, but to me, that that the presence in that festival had a whole different meaning because it was my first time going back to Colombia after almost, uh, I don't know, more than 15 years to go back and to reconnect for the first time with my conservatory and to perform there. Mm. So that comes to my mind as this very special moment of kind of words colliding, you know? Like I remember entering this one hall where I had my... um, degree recital when I my uh, last recital when I graduated then to come back you know with a whole different life that I never imagined I was going to have I mean I knew I was going to be playing bassoon someplace but where life has taken me and the many changes and at every level it was just so surreal to go back and you know play bassoon so um, I played several concerts in that festival. One of them was the premiere in South America of Miguel de Aguilas Malambo. I was part of that commission, which by the way, um, Miguel has been an amazing collaborator. Uh, we commissioned another piece from him for the quintet, for the Little Quintet. And he was here uh, at the university a few weeks ago for the CD release. And it was amazing too, to talk to him because, you know, I know him from his professional you know, life in the last few years the many things he's done, but we had the opportunity to to hear his stories when he was back in Uruguay. He left Uruguay very early in life, but uh, the circumstances and the stories he shared with us were just amazing just to hear how difficult life was then and how much that part of his is reflected in his music. So that's another fascinating thing, back to a previous question about working with these composers, is the stories Mm -hmm. that are, you know, in those pieces, it's, it's a treasure, you know, it's, it's, it's life, life stories and groups of stories and communities of stories and countries of stories, so really cool. So anyway, I performed that Malambo piece with an orchestra. I also, I was there also with a trio, uh, oboe, bassoon and piano, and we performed some uh, chamber music um, recitals. So that was just a, a great opportunity to go back and, wow, do that as an older lady. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Nobody would be able to have a career like mine. Like I won't be able to have a career like anybody else, right? Like, mm-hmm. And I think that's the magic of it. And that's probably the advice at the end of the story is like, find your path. I mean, we deal in this profession with a lot of competition, but I, I claim and I know there's a place for all of us. We just have to find that authentic voice that we have um, to, you know, be the best we can be and also to try to find happiness. And, you know, happiness is this very weird concept, but, yeah, but I feel really content um, with the life I have uh, between my teaching and my performing and my research and my connections and my family life. I, um, I feel I feel content. I feel like I have found my voice and it took me a long time and it was difficult. I think that being a musician is a difficult path. Um, but I also think that if we have the passion and the perseverance and, and the strength to do it, um, just find our voices and, and go there and go, go for it. Leah, it's been so amazing to talk to you. <laughs> and Thank you guys. 
Would you tell us about some exciting upcoming performances that you have uh, in the near future? I just had him a few weeks ago. Can I talk about it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because my, you know, these, the agenda for this uh, semester is almost over, but we had the CD release for the Lyric Quintet, by the way. I brought it here to show it to you. Nobody oh, cool! Yet, but I'm going to send it to you guys. It's called Arrivals and Departures, Music of the Americas. And um, it's a collection of um, music from all the way from Canada, an American composer, Cuban composer, Uruguayan composer, uh, Argentinian composer, and... Um, somebody else, Mexican composers. So um, we had our CD release and we're super excited to, to me also is that closure, you know, after working and recording for so long, like I am done, I'm ready to move on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we had the process, the recording, the release, the editing, the whatever, whatever, and now, now we're done with that. So that was recently. Also, uh, through one of these programs that I work in with Mid-America Arts Alliance, it happened that Three people got together. I was there as a bassoonist. A conductor from Houston was there too, um, with the same training that I was attending, and a composer that is uh, that lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So the three of us just got together and said, "Well, we're here, and we didn't know we're going to be together, and this is so unusual. Let's do something." So um, the composer Noam uh, Fangold wrote a concerto for bassoon and orchestra, and he was inspired by Manuela Sainz who, if you guys know about Manuela Sainz, she was the mistress of Simón Bolívar, which was wow. the person that liberated our countries from the Spanish. So very strong, weird um, woman, uh, weird for her time, uh, but very inspirational, you know, the way she led her life. So um, he wrote this concerto called Impressions on Manuela Sainz, and I just premiered that piece with the Houston Orchestra that Dominique Royam conducts a couple of weeks ago so that was really really amazing to be able to you know just be in that position of just thinking about a specific figure in history that is inspiring so our plan with this uh not in the very near future but soon is to take these pieces this piece to other places and uh concomitantly visit schools and visit um places where we can talk to specifically hispanic kids and tell the story of Manuela Science and present the bassoon and talk about the power of music and collaboration. So that will be coming pretty soon. That's very cool. Yeah, so, but yeah, that concerto. And then um, next year in April, I was part of this commission project uh, for a concerto for bassoon and wind ensemble by Nico Muley. So I'm super excited that I will be premiering that. I think um, this will be premiered for the very first time in. Um, by Michael Hurley. Ben Coelho is there. Eric Stonebrick is there. Um, a lot of people, I, all the names are escaping me right now, but super cool people. So I'm excited about that, learning the piece and, uh, and working on that. And also we have a festival, a women music festival. We are just starting here at the University of Arkansas. So, um, so I, cool. yeah, we're going to be playing um, music I'm going to be in my program is um, used by uh, women so I'm super excited about that and my CD is coming too I said I didn't have anything but I have things happening <laughs> <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> just my solo CD lots no big deal lots of contradiction that's my life <laughs> my solo CD that um, kind of happened at the same time that I, we were recording for the quintet so it was just too much to take to do both projects at the same time so my CD is just in the very last stage and I'm um, talking with my uh, graphic designer at the time to make final decisions on the cover and all of that, cover art. So that will be coming soon. So. That's, awesome. that's music by Latin American composers, so Latin American inspired composers. Awesome. We'll look forward yeah. to that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on Double Read Dish, Leah. Oh, thank you so much, guys. And good luck with everything. And we'll keep tuning to you guys to hear everything that you have to share with us. It's so inspiring. I have to say that just hearing other musicians and their paths and not only their achievements as musicians, but their, their lives and how they see life and people and music is just, it's really inspiring. We should, we should do more of that everywhere, you know, in our studios, in our universities, in our communities, just that personal connection um, gives another dimension. So thank you for promoting that and uh, supporting that. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. That means a lot. 
a great interview to start the new year with. We hope that you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can listen to us on anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, don't forget to rate and leave us a review. Check out our newly updated website. We have a live appearances section where you can see where you can come hang out with us on the road this year. Galit, who do we have coming up next? We're so excited to bring to you an interview with Frank Rosenwine, Principal Oboe of the Cleveland Orchestra. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.